Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Radically Loved Podcast. We have one of our favorite repeat guests rejoining us on the show today. It is Light Watkins. He is coming back to us with a new book, Travel Light, which is going to be out for you, viewers, listeners, to have in your own hands in July, which is when this podcast will come out. So you will be getting the very fresh first listen to the backstory of Travel Light. And Light, as you may know, is uh, this is his fourth book. So he's a multiple time author. He's a TEDx speaker. He has his own podcast called The Light Watkins Show. He travels the world speaking and he travels light. <laughs> and that's what I want to focus on today because as those of you who know me and know what I love to do, I love to go backpacking, which is I don't know, I guess adjacent to traveling light. I really do try to travel light. And so I think there's a lot of tips and tricks that for those of us that love to get outside in nature can take from this book. And also that we just want to travel lighter because it's, as we'll see, beneficial in many ways. This is the episode for you. So without further ado, Light, welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to be here. Yeah, Great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for coming back and for letting me host this conversation with you. So this is your fourth book and the subject is traveling light. And it's, I mean, when we say travel light in the context of this book, what I'm taking away from it is that we're talking more about spiritual minimalism and you call out seven principles of spiritual minimalism. I guess what I wanted to do was start by defining what we mean when we say spiritual minimalism. That's a tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's perfect. Because I don't want people thinking that this is a travel book or it's a book about getting rid of your belongings. Not to say there's anything wrong with that, but there are plenty of minimalism books that help you go through your cupboards and clean out your closet and help you work out what you should get rid of and what what you should keep. And that's wonderful. This book is, the subtitle is Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. So it's about living a more fulfilled life through getting rid of internal clutter, getting rid of internal baggage. And the way to do that is to create a foundation of inner work, primarily through stillness practice. I'm a longtime meditator and meditation teacher. So what I've joked about before is that I've written four books and the first book was on happiness. The second book was on the how to meditate book. The third book was on inspiration. This book is on minimalism, but really they're all meditation books with a little bit of other things sprinkled throughout because I'm a big believer that you experience life from the inside out and wherever you go, there you are as the saying goes. So if you want to be more fulfilled, if you want to be happier, if you want to be more peaceful, if you want to have more gratitude, then there's no achievement 
there's no external achievement. And I'm talking about material achievements, like making a certain amount of money, getting a promotion, moving into a new house, getting a new car, moving to a new city. There's no material achievement that's going to make you happier than you're able to be right now in this moment. And so the real question is, are you also, it's not about not achieving, but are you also putting as much effort and attention and intention into cultivating your internal states of fulfillment, happiness, peace, contentedness, so that when you do achieve the thing in the future, you bring a greater sense of happiness with you to meet you at that achievement. And so that's, that's the essence of spiritual minimalism is you have all of the resources and all of the tools you need to be as happy as anyone could possibly be, but there's something standing in the way. And that thing that's usually standing in the way is, is internal. It's internalized. It could be old trauma, old pain, old outdated belief systems, cultural indoctrination, fear voices, voices of, of the media, you know, stuff that we consume, stuff that we've been exposed to. And it really does take consistent effort in purging some of this stuff from, from our emotional and mental, and physical and spiritual bodies so that we can access more and more of that fulfillment that lies uh, within us. And so Travel Light is really a, a how-to guide to do that, to unlock your potential and so that you can start to have better experiences. And I break, break it down, as you mentioned, into seven principles for doing so. Yeah. And so it seems like one of the main practices for achieving this in the book is meditation, a meditation, developing a meditation practice, understanding what that means, kind mm-hmm. of like a how to. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of how important is meditation to achieving spiritual minimalism and in terms of like, if we're thinking this is the path I want to go down, but meditation scares me or I can't do it right because my mind stops thinking, how do we kind of at least start where do we start <laughs> and yeah. develop that? So a couple things. Number one, I'm presenting to the reader the minimalist approach to meditation because what I've discovered throughout my own experiences and through teaching thousands of people is that the less you do in meditation, the better it usually works. I think a lot of people have a tendency to do too much and that's what can cause their mind to become even busier And then eventually they disqualify themselves from thinking that they are able to meditate. But surprisingly, when you do less, when you do least, and when you can get to the point where you're not really doing anything, that's where all of the benefits, the internal benefits that you want to experience in meditation will start to happen in terms of the settled mind, the relaxed body, the greater sense of awareness, more restfulness coming out of the practice, and then an easier ability to adapt to change. And the reason why meditation is the number one principle, cultivate your internal state of happiness through the practice of meditation, and specifically through this minimalist approach to meditation, is because meditation is the key domino for being able to do less and accomplish more in life. And um, just an example of that is I got introduced to meditation properly in the early 2000s. And prior to that, I considered myself to be a very calm person. Like a lot of people, you know, come to meditation from having lots of stress or some something 
painful occurred and they're looking for an answer. And then other people come to meditation because they're just curious about this practice and, and how it works. And I was in that camp. I was in the curiosity camp. So I was a very much a spiritual seeker. And what I got from meditation that I didn't anticipate getting was a stronger connection to my intuition. I felt that I had a connection to my intuition before, but I didn't realize how much stronger it could get. You know, we call it the still small voice. And that's the, the heart voice or that, that voice of intuition, the internal GPS, many names for it. And that's that voice that's kind of whispering and nudging you to go left instead of right or to take the stairs instead of the elevator or to not go into work today because it just doesn't feel right. You know, all these things, whenever there's a crisis, there's always somebody who has a report of, oh, how they didn't feel like it was the right thing to do and they didn't go and they avoided this thing. And you end up being in the right place at the right time when you're listening to that still small voice. But the problem is because it's so still and so small, most people can only really hear it when they're in a quiet area, when it's very peaceful, getting out a massage at a spa, being on a beach somewhere, being out in nature somewhere. And that's beautiful. But can you access that where it really would help you, such as in the midst of an argument or when you're in traffic or when something happens and you feel tempted to react to that thing that happens in a negative way? Can you access that still small voice then? And the problem is that it's oftentimes too still and too small and it's being drowned out by all the other fear voices. So what meditation does very effectively is it turns up the volume on that voice and it becomes a loud, annoying voice, which is where you ultimately want it to be because then you can't ignore it. And as you continue following it, you'll find that again, it places you in the right space and at the right time more often than not. Yeah. Oh. So when you're speaking to turning up the, how, when you're sitting in meditation and that kind of still small voice becomes the loud, annoying voice, I think of this as all of the times that I've described sitting in meditation, whether it be I'm lying down having yoga nidra practice, or I'm trying to sit upright and just focus on my breath. And then almost like an overwhelming anxiety, kind of like, I want to jump out of my skin, kind of a thing happens. And I'm like, wow, I can't sit with this. It's too big. It's too loud. It's too much. And it takes me out of that being able to be still being able to sit with it. What would you say to that? So a lot of times those those kinds of voices or thoughts you may be having aren't necessarily still small voice turned up. It could be some other voice or some other thought that is a byproduct of something that your meditation practice is helping you purge. So whatever goes into the body passes through the filter of your consciousness, right? If you're in some crazy abusive situation in your late teens, in order to feel that emotional abuse, you have to first have a thought about it. Oh my God, this is crazy. I can't believe they just did that. Or I can't believe they just said that. That thought then tells your brain to produce distressful chemicals to tell your body to go into fight or flight reaction, okay? To deal with or cope with that experience. So that experience or, or similar experiences continue happening, your brain starts hardwiring itself 
to produce the distressful chemicals all the time. And then cut to 10 years later, you're just anxious all the time. And there's really no legitimate reason to be anxious. You're anxious because your body has been told through your thoughts that you live in a very distressful environment. And so it's always keeping itself prepared to fight or flee. Okay. But that's essentially where all of these disorders, mental challenges stem from is some degree of unregulated stress, meaning too much stress and not enough outlets to release the stress. So what meditation does beautifully is it creates a reliable outlet for the stress to get released. And when the stress gets released, it will pass back through the same filter of consciousness that it originally entered into, which is your your thinking mind. So as your body has an opportunity to de-excite through this practice, if you want to do more research on it, there's this book called The Relaxation Response, which describes all of the biochemical changes that the body can experience during a meditation practice. Well, that can cause you to be thinking about things that you haven't thought about in a long time. And a lot of those thoughts can be colored in a distressful tone. So you may be thinking, oh, meditation is causing my mind to get busier. But what's actually happening that most people don't realize is the meditation is facilitating the release of old stress. That's why you can't determine progress in meditation based on what you're thinking about during the meditation itself. What you're thinking about is symbolic to what's leaving you, not what's going into you. The way you know meditation worked is that you're more adaptable to change outside of meditation. So I talk about that in Travel Light. I go into great detail about that in my previous book, Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. So if people want to get more information about this, if this resonates then I say check out Bliss More. But otherwise, there's some basic instructions on how to do this in Travel Light because if you're not doing this on a regular basis, your body is not going to be able to get rid of that stuff that's keeping you stuck in that toxic relationship or in that soul-sucking job or in that outdated belief system. It'll be really hard to take a leap of faith and to follow your heart and to follow your curiosity and leave places better than you found them and all the other principles that I'm talking about in Travel Light. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I get these questions a lot as I teach yoga and meditation as well. And they're usually the the questions like, it isn't always formed as a question, kind of like how I just stated it. When I sit to meditate, my mind won't stop thinking. So therefore, I can't meditate or it's not physically comfortable. And so therefore, I can't sit upright. So therefore, I can't meditate. And so I think there's just, there's kind of like some myths that need to be dispelled about what meditation actually is and how we can effectively learn to meditate. So I appreciate that. Thank you for the resources. I wanted to go back to something you started to talk about intuition and the voice of intuition. And it's clear to me that you are someone who very closely listens to that voice and you've honed the skill. And in the book, you refer to it as the split test, split test your heart voice. And yeah. I was wondering if you could speak more to that. Yeah. So. It's really hard to decipher which voice is the voice of your intuition when it's being drowned out by a lot of other voices in there. And in the book, I liken it to a basketball arena, right? So just imagine that you are playing in the basketball arena and it's full of people. And of course, you have the expensive floor seats. 
And you can sometimes on television see the basketball players interacting with people who are sitting on the floor, all the celebrities. And then you have the nosebleeds and you have everything in between. So for most people, the fear voice has the floor seats, <laughs> right? Those are the ones we interact with the most. And the still small voice, they're up in the nosebleeds because those are the ones that we interact with the least. So the ones you interact with the most have the loudest voices and the ones you interact with the least are furthest away. So that's why it's called, again, the still small voice. And by split testing, meaning if you know anything about internet marketing, you know, running a, a Google ad or a Facebook ad, the way that internet marketers will optimize the ads, meaning have the perfect headline, the perfect color, the perfect photo, the perfect description at the perfect time, the way they find that optimized version is they split test. They run two different ads with different headlines and whichever one gets the most clicks, then they go with that one. And then they change the photo and they find out which photo gets the most clicks. And then they change the color and they find out which color gets the most clicks. And then by the time they get done split testing everything, they've optimized for that particular ad and it's getting the most clicks. So the same thing is true for our internal voices. If you are, are intentional about wanting to listen to and follow your internal voice of guidance or what I call in the book, the heart voice, then you, you listen to what you think is the heart voice. And the heart voice is usually guiding you in a direction that is making you feel more expansive as opposed to feeling contracting. So for instance, I was watching the movie Flight last night with Denzel Washington. I just love Denzel Washington. I watch anything that he's in, right? And in this movie, this came out years ago. So if you haven't seen it yet, um, I'm sorry to spoil it for you. But the plot of the movie is he's an alcoholic airline pilot, right? And the flight that he's piloting has some mechanical issues and he ends up steering the plane to a crash landing in a way that no other pilot could have done so, but he was drunk at the time. He was legally intoxicated at the time, but his instincts were so strong that he was still able to land the plane in an expert fashion. And he's being questioned about this later on. And he's lying to the person who's questioning him in this trial. He's saying, I'm not an alcoholic. I didn't drink anything. He's doing what most people would probably do if they were facing severe jail time. And there's no evidence of you being in the wrong. And if anything, people are looking at you as a hero. And so he's just lying. And then the final question is they're accusing his girlfriend, who was also on the plane who passed away from the accident, of being intoxicated and even though she wasn't. And anyways, he's got this moment of truth, you know, that he's facing and he's like staring and he's asking to repeat the question over and over. And anyway, finally, he just admits to everything. He says, I am an alcoholic. I did drink. I was drunk. In fact, I was drunk for the three or four days leading up to that. And all of his lawyers, they're all like rolling their eyes. They can't believe it because he almost got away with it. But that's what the still small voice encourages us to do. And I wanted to use that example because, you know, there are repercussions to telling the truth. But one thing he says later on in the final scene of the movie, he says, it's, it's crazy for me to say this as he's in prison. He says, I know I'm in prison, but I've never felt freer. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that expansion is what we get when we follow through on that heart voice that tells us, do the right thing. Take the path that feels most aligned, right? But now, hopefully, we're not going to be in any situation that feels that dramatic. So it's good to start practicing this with little things like take the elevator instead of the stairs, you know, or go into this shop and see what's happening in there. Because we all get these little hunches and urges on a daily basis, but most of them we may ignore because, oh, I'm in a hurry or, oh, there's nothing in there for me. I hate bread or baguettes and that's what they're selling in the shop. But something inside of you is saying, go do this thing. And when you think back to the most adventurous experiences that you've had, usually they start with something told me to dot, 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 and you went through with it and you had some magical experience of wonder and and, and adventure. I love that example. I love the kind of conclusion of maybe love's not the right word, but I I find it inspiring to feel like there's the possibility of that much freedom in telling the truth, despite the consequences. And it re it, I'm thinking back to this is, I think it's in the introduction where you're starting to define spiritual minimalism, but I love this quote. It jumped off the page at me and I can't stop rereading it. And that is the fewer options you have, the more freedom you have to make decisions and the more present you become. And so to me, I, I always think about like the kind of idea, the thought behind how Steve Jobs would wear the same exact thing every day. So as to not have to even make a decision about what it is that he was going to wear. And that frees up your time and and your mental capacity to focus on more things that matter. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to, I guess, decision-making or being more free to follow your knee-jerk reaction into an adventure or following that intuition as it relates to decision-making. Does that make sense? <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, all the all of the principles, I'll just review them really quickly because they all kind of tie to that. Okay, so the first one is cultivate inner happiness. Second one, make the most important decisions that you have to make from your heart, not your head. The third one is to treat life as though there are no throwaway moments. The fourth principle of spiritual minimalism is to give what you want to receive which sounds a lot like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The fifth principle is to follow your curiosity. The sixth one is to find comfort and discomfort. And then the last one, which is one I think you're referring to, is to celebrate the freedom of choicelessness. Yeah, And I use that word intentionally, celebrate it. Celebrate the freedom of choicelessness. See, we live in a society where we feel like the more options I have, the better. And We'll even equate the number of options with freedom. But actually, and we're starting to see this now in the research, what more options does, it creates paralysis analysis. And we don't even make a choice because we're afraid of making the wrong choice. And look, we're all born with this North Star, and it's called our heart. And so the question is, are you following the heart or are you not following the heart? And the heart doesn't give you three different options. The heart gives you one option at any given moment. So again, one of those options is going to either be aligned or it's not. And if it's not aligned, it doesn't matter how glittery it looks. doesn't matter what everybody, what the crowd is doing. That's not the choice for you. If it is aligned, then it is the choice for you. Again, no matter how glittery it looks or how much people accept it or not. 
And so that's why it's really hard to determine success based on what society defines as success, because you may have a seven-figure salary at your job, but you're crying going to and from work every day because it just feels so unaligned with what you are wanting to be and wanting to do and wanting to, and the effect you're wanting to have on a daily basis. So you may decide to resign from that position and start working at a homeless shelter or start working as a social worker, go back and become a high school teacher, which now you're making, you know, $30,000 a year or something like that. But for whatever reason, serving in that capacity lights you up inside. And it feels like you're making a million bucks, even though technically you're not. Now, everybody on the outside is going to look at you like a failure. I can't believe you left that seven-figure job just to go and work with kids who don't appreciate you. And, you know, they'll start laying it on thick. And then if you have FOPO, fear of other people's opinions, it's going to be very tempting to stay the course. But if you are choosing based on alignment as opposed to material achievement, then it's a lot easier to stay the course. And what you may find is that from staying the course, from doing what lights you up, yes, it starts off with you making $40,000 a year, but you put everything, you put your whole heart and soul into it. People recognize that. And then eventually you get promoted to the district, whatever, superintendent of these organizations because they want someone like you to help run it. Next thing you know, 10 years later, you're sitting in the White House on the board of social development or improvement, you know, directly uh, advising the president on these matters. Right. And but you couldn't have possibly seen that for yourself. You just knew that your heart was telling you to do something that is more oriented towards this degree of service instead of just focusing on hedge funds or mutual funds or, you know, being an accountant or whatever, which is something you had no desire to do. And you had to take that step in order to see the next step, which is that promotion in order to get the next step, which is the recommendation and the next step. And then eventually your heart has guided you along your path to your true purpose, But when you follow the heart, it's going to be uncertain. It's going to come with some sort of anticipation and excitement because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And it's not to say that it's going to be easy. You know, maybe you had to figure out how to pay your bills for a few years there. But in doing so, you develop the internal skill set that then led to you becoming nominated in this bigger position later on down the line. So everything that you experienced was guiding you in that direction. All you have to do is just say yes to it. And that's what I mean by the freedom of choicelessness. You don't consider anything that doesn't feel completely aligned with your heart. Thank you. I want to talk about exercise. It's something that you bring up in the book. As it, as all of the things in the book, we're talking about a minimalist approach to exercising. And I was, I was hoping you could explain what you mean by that and why it's important and why you included it in this book. Well, a lot of times, you know, people will start a meditation practice or a gratitude practice and all these other internal practices, which are beautiful and absolutely relevant, but then they'll neglect their body. (laughs) And you need your physical body to also be functionally strong in addition to your spiritual body, your energetic body, and your all all of the other bodies. And so 
um, that also leads to a sense of freedom. Strength is freedom. You know, being able to walk up a flight of stairs gives you a freedom that you wouldn't have otherwise. And it also frees up your mind to be able to contemplate other solutions to things that people need help with. They say that the healthy man thinks about a million things. The sick man only thinks about one thing. And so we want to be in that position where we can think about solutions for a lot of things. And in order to do that, we need to be healthy. Now, the pandemic occurred. I was a big gym goer and I ended up, you know, uh, slipping on my commitment to exercise because I didn't have the gym to rely on. And fortunately, it allowed me to think about, okay, well, well, how can I do this without the gym with just body weight? And I wasn't the first person to think about calisthenics or anything like that, but I wanted to create a situation, a, a system where people could minimize the main pain point with exercise, which is, I don't feel like it. I don't have time to exercise. And so I decided to try out for myself a minimalist approach to movement, which involved just one body weight exercise a day. And it was going to be less than what I felt that I could do. So for instance, Let's say I can do 40 unbroken push-ups, knees up, right? I started off with 20. So easy to do 20 would take me less than two minutes to do 20 unbroken push-ups. Fine. All right. So then I would assign Mondays for push-ups, do these 20 push-ups. If I need to put my knees down, put my knees down. And then the next Monday, I would add on two push-ups. Now I'm doing 22 push-ups. And then the next Monday, I'm doing 24 push-ups. And like that, I'm adding on just a little bit at a time, but I'm getting stronger as I do it week to week. And I'm finishing so quickly that I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is easy. Of course I can do this. And then Tuesdays, I started doing 20 air squats, which is where you just stand with your feet, hips distance, hip distance apart, and you bend your knees and you squat down as deeply as you can, and then you stand back up. You do 20 of those, it may take you a couple minutes. And then on Wednesdays, you do some sort of back exercise. So I had these pull-up bars around the corner from my house. It was hard to do a full pull-up. So I got a resistance band, wrapped it around the bar, put my feet in one of them, and used that to help assist me as I pulled myself up. I would do five of those, right? Thursdays, walking lunges. So like that, I created one body weight for each day of the week. And then each week, I would add a couple more reps onto it and then building up to eventually about 100 reps of each one after about a year. And I was able to use that as a way of making sure I got movement every day, making sure I was functionally strong and without having to go anywhere. I could do it in a hotel room. I could do it in an Airbnb. I could do it outside. I could do it even if it was raining or if it was snowing or if it was freezing. I could do it in any situation. And I did. I practiced it in any and every situation. And you build up that consistency and the momentum. And that's the real habit. The real habit is not a, the push-up or the pull-up. It's the consistency. And then you create a streak and then you don't want to break the streak because it's, again, it's just a couple of minutes and you can do it while you're watching TV. You can even do it with your regular clothes on. You didn't need exercise clothes. I rarely broke a sweat 
because I wasn't exercising that much, but I was doing it consistently. And then on top of that, I was adding walking. Whenever I could walk, I would walk. So if I was driving somewhere, I wouldn't look for a parking space right out in front. I would park all the way in the back of the parking lot and then give myself the freedom of choicelessness of walking up to the front door. And if I didn't have to drive, I would just walk whatever it was, the half a mile. Once you look at it, stop looking at a mile as this long distance. A mile is just 2,500 steps. It takes you 20 minutes to casually walk a mile. So if you map out where you live and where you run your errands and you see that, oh, the hardware store or whatever store I was going to go to is a mile away, that's 2,500 steps. That's 20 minutes. So it's 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back. You've walked two miles. You've walked 5,000 steps. If your goal is 5,000 steps, just by running that errand, you meet your goal within an hour and you get movement. So just, again, starting to look at life a lot differently, taking the stairs instead of the elevator. A lot of times we do these things automatically. We never even think, oh, well, What happens if I take the stairs? Is it going to kill me? No, it's going to make you stronger. You get to work on your cardiovascular. You can stop and take breaks, however many flights up you need to. But at the end of the day, you're adding to your steps. And once you start tracking your steps, which is really easy to do from your smartphone, it becomes addicting and you want to reach certain goals. So I recommend people start looking at that stuff and you may find that you actually want to park further away. Then the crowd is all trying buying for those same few parking spaces in front. And you're just kind of, you know, smiling as you drive to the back of the parking lot because it means that you get to get more steps, more movement, better health, and all the things that come with that. Yeah, I love that tip. That's great. I was curious if that's what you meant by aimless walking, or I, I'm gonna butcher this, this 18th century French term for aimless walking. Flaneuring. Flaneuring. Yeah. Flaneuring is something that the French aristocrats used to do back in the 18th century. They would just go out and they would just walk with no particular destination in mind, right? And this would give them an opportunity to be present, to notice things, to observe, and to really engage with their environment. And as someone who wants to get more steps in on a daily basis, I look at what I'm doing as flaneuring because, again, if I'm getting that internal nudge or hunch to take a left instead of a right, even though Google Maps may say take a right, but something inside of me says, oh, no, go explore over here and see what's happening. Now you're flaneuring. You're not walking with some predetermined route in mind. You're actually giving yourself the opportunity to split test your inner voice while you're also getting your steps while you're also practicing presence. Because another thing with flaneuring is you don't do it when you're under the influence of alcohol. They also recommend not doing it with other people, going out by yourself for a walk, obviously in a safe environment. If you feel safe, you know, do that. If you don't feel safe, then maybe you go out with someone else. But if you're too busy talking and gossiping and stuff with someone else, you're not going to be as present as you are Uh, or as you would be if you were out walking uh, by yourself. So it's just a great opportunity to do less and accomplish more, to give yourself a chance to practice all those things while moving your body, while, and that has its own, you know, host of benefits, digesting your food, helping to regulate your respiratory system, your immune system gets stronger and all kinds of things that we list off in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned alcohol. 
Mm. <laughs> and I've heard you speak a little bit about functional alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and your thoughts around alcohol in general. Uh, alcohol is the, I should say, the, the state of inebriation is the opposite state to spiritual minimalism. Okay. So when spiritual minimalism is about presence, inebriation is the lack of presence. You're not present to what's happening in and around you when you're under the influence of alcohol. And I state the fact that most people are more functionally alcoholic than they probably realize. And in order to test this out, because I don't want anybody taking my word for it, in order to test this out, I recommend going three months without drinking alcohol. So 90 days is about the length of time that it takes to form a habit. And it also, what forming a habit really is, is the absence of an older habit. That's what forming a habit is. So if you're coming off the couch to start exercising, it takes about 90 days to break the habit of wanting to sit on that couch instead of working out, okay? The working out is actually quite easy. You just get up and do some push-ups or something. But it's that desire to sit on the couch and give yourself excuses. Oh, I'm too tired. I, I don't have enough time. That is a habit that has formed over perhaps decades, and it's going to take a few months to break. So when you're forming this new habit of expanded awareness, you have to break the old habit of inebriation, the thing that your body may be conditioned to at this point from decades of poisoning yourself in the name of fun, <laughs> just to call it what it is, right? I don't have any judgment around it, but that's what it is. Technically speaking, you're, you're introducing poison to your nervous system and it helps to fade away whatever issues you may be coping with, okay? So it takes about 90 days to deconstruct that older habit in order for this new habit of, of appreciation for expanded awareness to happen. So I'm not actually anti-alcohol, I'm pro-awareness, I'm pro-awareness. And if you can't go three months or if the thought to go three months seems completely ridiculous, then that is hard evidence that the main voice that you're hearing inside is not your heart voice because your heart voice will never tell you to dilute your problems away with alcohol. Your heart voice will tell you to get to the root of these issues so that you can feel that sense of freedom and liberation, right? So it's going to be challenging, but again, that gives you an opportunity to split test which voice is actually running the show. And if you can't go a full three months, maybe you just go three weeks and that's fine. So then I say, okay, go and have your alcohol, right? Do what you got to do and then start over and see if you can get to four weeks. And then next time, see if you can get to six weeks. And it may take you a year and a half to get to the full three months, but that's the point where you start to liberate yourself from this old habit of having to drink alcohol in order to feel a sense of internal peace away from whatever problems you're having. But it's not real peace. It's fake peace because it comes with a lot of undesirable side effects. So I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention the stimulant of caffeine, because for me, it feels like they kind of go hand in hand in terms of if 
let's say for me, for example, if I'm dependent on caffeine to wake me up in the morning, then maybe I'm dependent on a glass of wine to help me relax in the evening. Yeah. Any thoughts on stimulants such as coffee or caffeine? Coffee and alcohol are not natural stimulants. We don't actually, if you're healthy, whole and balanced, you should not need these substances in order to function optimally throughout the day. And that's the standard of spiritual minimalism is how can I access all of my potential in this moment? And if I'm having to need alcohol or coffee in order to move through the day, you know, in order to be aware and then in order to forget all the things I don't want to be aware of anymore, (laughs) then that's an indication that there's some imbalances that are being experienced. And if I look, here's the thing with the body we need to understand. The body is a form and all forms, what they do is they adapt to function. So if the function is running away from my problems, then the body is going to try to adapt to that, right? Which means the brain is going to hardwire towards that experience. And unfortunately, that is not the type of body that we want to live in in order to thrive in all areas of life, health-wise, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. So if we want to unlock our potential in all of those areas, then we want to restore ourselves to our factory setting as close as we can get to it. And that's where a practice like daily meditation can come in very handy because Nothing can restore us to our factory setting more efficiently than sitting down once or twice a day for 15 or 20 minutes with our eyes closed and allowing our body to purge the thing that's been keeping us stuck for decades and keeping the brain hardwired towards behaviors that don't lead to very desirable experiences in life. Yeah. Thank you. The hard truth. I love coffee. (laughs) I I drink coffee too. I've had coffee. I've had two coffees today. But if I leave town, I don't need coffee to wake up and get going. Mm -hmm. I like the taste of nut milk flavored coffee and at at this specific place. And if I'm not near this specific place, I just don't have the coffee. I do like hot tea and stuff like that, but it's not about not enjoying a glass of wine on occasion or not enjoying a cup of coffee here and there. The question is, do I need it in order to feel like myself? Because if you don't have it and you need it to feel like yourself, then you're not going to be yourself in those moments when you don't have it. And that could be the, your moment to shine. That could be the moment where you are presented with this opportunity to fulfill your purpose and you're not ready. So, you know, I'm all about let's stay ready so we don't ever have to get ready. And in order to do that, we need to prepare ourselves for not the best day where I'm near the coffee shop and I have my wine and all that. It's for our worst day. How are you performing on your worst day? And what can you do in that situation to stay ready? Can you get down on the hotel floor, on the conference room floor and do your push-ups, get your movement? Because you never know when you're going to have to exhibit that functional strength, perhaps to save someone from something. Jump into the, we've seen these clips of people diving into rivers because some child fell in or their dog or something needed to be rescued or somebody needed to climb up into a building and, you know, rescues. You never know. You never know when life and death is going to be on the line. And if you stay ready, you don't ever have to get ready. 
Yeah, I love that clarification. Thank you. (laughs) I do want to ask about, so you talk about hand washing your clothes and I love how you give us a list of like what's in your pack and how it's gotten smaller and smaller over the years. And like I said before, I love this kind of practical look at things because I do try to travel light since, especially when I go backpacking, because everything I'm carrying that I have to put it on my back, everything I need, I have to pack in and pack out. And so I was wanting to hear about what your kind of method is around hand washing your clothes, because it sounds like now it's like one change of clothing that you're carrying with you. So you need to be able to keep it clean, right? Ideally, it's one chain of clothes. And let me let me just clarify this, okay? okay. I don't hand wash my clothes every day. Okay. <laughs> I have a washer and dryer in my Airbnb that I'm staying in here in Mexico City. So I wash and dry my clothes using the washer and dryer, usually when I'm here. but When I'm on the road, which I was on the road quite a bit prior to me being in Mexico City, I taught myself how to hand wash my clothes. And in that case, each night you would take your clothes off and you would hand wash. You just go to the sink. You would get some shampoo, which is apparently better than soap. It actually lathers better than soap. And you would just put your clothes, submerge them in water, put the little shampoo in there and then just just agitate. And then you would rinse them out and then wring them and then roll them in a towel, a clean towel. And then you would hang them on a drawer or on a coat hanger or something. And then by the next morning, within about six or seven hours, your clothes would be dry and it was beautiful. And eventually it became like a little mini meditation, right? Where you have an opportunity to really form a relationship with your clothes, which again, sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. Oh, I'm in relationship with my clothes. but the reality from a spiritual perspective is that you're in a relationship with everything. You're in a relationship with your car. Some people put give, give their cars a name. Your relationship with your home. Some people give their homes a name. La Casa de blah, blah, blah. Well, then why, why can't your clothes also be sentient? Why can't your shoes be sentient? And it actually is. And what that does is, again, it helps to cultivate a sense of presence and a sense of present moment awareness. And you can imagine if your clothes or other inanimate objects were able to respond to how they were being handled or treated, they would probably enjoy being gently massaged by you a lot better than being tossed in some machine and, you know, thrown around and all of this. And so, and being gently air dried and, you know, so it just, again, whether you believe in this stuff or not, it certainly feels better when you are able to be self-sufficient in that way and hand wash your clothes and you put on the clothes that you actually care for yourself with your own two hands and you wear those throughout the day. And what I discovered is that you can actually get the clothes cleaner doing it that way versus putting them in a washing machine on some, you know, rinse cycle. So I recommend everybody try that out. And I tell you exactly how to do it in the book so that you're spending less than five minutes doing it. And again, they're nice and fresh and clean the next day. And you never have to worry about the airline losing your bags or anything like that, because you know that you can wash everything that you're wearing and be completely fresh the next day. So that gives you another layer of self-sufficiency, which in turn leads to more presence. If you don't have that, and you're always thinking, oh, well, what about my clothes that didn't arrive? And Oh, now I'm not, you're not present which means you're missing things. You're missing opportunities that are happening all around you because you're focused on what didn't happen yesterday. So you're robbing yourself 
of that present moment awareness. And it's really hard to get that back if you keep getting yanked out of the present and back into the past or worried about what the future is going to bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Light. The one last thing I wanted to mention that I loved, it was a helpful perspective shift. When you were thinking about packing, you were describing instead of thinking about how many things can I fit in this bag, and I'm trying to paraphrase this here, but it's more like, what exactly do I need? What do I actually need to take with me? Instead of how much can I fit? And it's even just saying that I feel a a shift in terms of body language. I feel tense when I say, how many things can I fit? And when I think about, well, what do I actually need? It's more of a, a curiosity I get. I have this sense of wonder. So I love that. Yeah, that was my own trajectory going from how much can I fit into my carry on bag, which is the first bag that I had when I moved out of my place in 2018. And then realizing I have way too much stuff. And then graduating to that question, what do I actually wear? What do I actually need? And then that's how I got down to the day pack that I have currently today. Yeah, that's such a cool story. I love it. It's so inspiring. And so you can follow along with Light's journey. His website is lightwatkins.com. That's L-I-G-H-T-W-A-T-K-I-N-S.com. And I'll make sure that gets in the show notes. And I'm wondering, Light, is there anywhere that you like people to connect with you? I know you have an online community, the Happiness Insiders. What else do you want yeah, to know? I'm on all the socials at Light Watkins. And uh, I've got a podcast, as you mentioned, the Light Watkins show. But yeah, just hit, just follow me on the socials. And if you want to access my online community, you can do that through uh, lightwatkins.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and coming back. And as always, just being your present self and just sharing your very amazing, inspiring journey. I love it. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Tessa. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.